Welcome back to part two of the Geopolitical Pickles 2022 Year in Review season finale. We hope that you've enjoyed the first part, but if you haven't already listened to that, we suggest that you go back and do that first. We pick up the conversation now talking about Southern Africa after just finishing talking about West Africa, and we carry on talking about the geopolitics of Asia, the cyber and space domains, as well as climate change. We hope you enjoy the episode and happy holidays. So staying on the continent and looking more towards Southern Africa, the SADC region, I'd like to just touch on what's been happening in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm-hmm. The armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo called FADAC, they have accused the M23 rebel group, which basically exists all through the east of the country, mm-hmm. of carrying out massacres of civilians. And they've also throughout the year carried out a number of attacks on government troop positions and attacked bases and they've caused tens of thousands of refugees and displaced peoples. What's important about this conflict is the DRC has actually accused Rwanda of aiding and supporting the military group and the massacre and M23 in general. Yeah, actually, uh, well, indeed, the M23 is a rebel group that originated in 2012 as a retaliation to what they saw as a discrimination of the Congolese Tutsi population often are of uh, Rwandan descent, and referred to as uh, Rwandophones. The M23 occupied the eastern city of Goma in 2012, forcing the SADC to intervene. The Southern African Development Community. To intervene and broker a ceasefire that the majority of the group led the majority of the group, taking shelter in friendly Uganda and Rwanda. So yeah, Rwanda's long denied any associations with M23. They fear that it will actually negatively impact their ability to access aid money, which they've received so much of since the genocide which occurred. However, Human Rights Watch, for example, has backed up the DRC's claim Mm -hmm. and basically said, yeah, they have evidence that the Rwandan government and the Rwandan army has supplied troops and weapons to M23 rebel group. The reason why this might be done by Rwanda is to basically destabilize the central DRC government and use them as a proxy force to create an environment, maybe a black spot where the government can't control, mm-hmm. and create an environment where they can exploit some of the natural resources, which is very interesting for what we'll talk about next. Basically, there are two of the there are two really important raw materials that are mined in the DRC. However, there are many raw materials that are mined in the DRC, but two important ones that we'll talk are cobalt. Cobalt reserves of the DRC account for 60%, uh, around 60% of the of the world. And it's a really important material in creating your... All batteries. All and batteries, so phone batteries, Tesla car batteries, exactly. and the next generation of energy storage devices, say, all use big battery technology, which is heavily reliant on a large supply of cobalt. And yeah, as you say... Cobalt has 60% of the world's reserves and is the largest producer of cobalt exactly. in the world. And then there's another uh, there's another material which is called pyrochlor, which is basically a strategic material that once used in manufacturing, it allows you to make up nozzles of rockets. It allows you to make up the engines for satellites. So it's it's actually pretty pretty important no, for the international world. What's what's actually fascinating about pyrochlor and its raw material when it's um, processed, which is niobium, which I had never heard of before doing some research. Being an engineer. Being an engineer. I never heard of this. 
Um, this material, I mean, it is, first of all, it's only located in DRC and Malaysia. In the whole world, it's the only places where you can get any niobium. And so when it's used in these really high-end technology appliances, that makes it extremely valuable and strategically important. However, interestingly, there is a publication of a report recently which said that Congo has never officially exported any of this material, whereas its neighbors, Uganda and Rwanda, have. So mm -hmm. that lends some sort of credence to the idea that this destabilization effort by those countries using a proxy force, because they can't use the government forces, but using the proxy force of M23 to destabilize the Congolese government and be able to extract this material and export it, they've been able to potentially loot this niobium, this highly valuable material, which is only found in two places in the world. So I think it's a very fascinating topic, which next year in season two, I think we plan to have a few episodes on the strategic importance of different materials. And this is just like a little teaser to what those discussions could entail. Yes, the geopolitics of materials. The geopolitics of materials, eh? Yes, it's going to be an interesting. Stay tuned for that. <laughs> and now uh, we go a little bit northern uh, from the DRC and we go to the conflict in the Tigray, which is an Ethiopian region. Well, the conflict is long, uh, but the Tigray, for the TPLF, for example, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, was the one ruling uh, Ethiopia for some 30 years. However, now in the opposition, there's been many issues. This particular conflict that is happening right now uh, started in November 3rd, and it ran until November 4th, 2022. November 3rd, 2020. Even, uh, Sorry, uh, November 3rd, 2020 till no, uh, yeah. 4th November 2022. However, arguably, is still in place. Basically, the Tigrayan People Liberation Front, the TPLF, uh, ruled for 27 years before and then lost power in 2018 to uh, the current president, Abiy Ahmed. And these tensions between the Tigrayan region and uh, Addis Abeba grew throughout 2021 with Tigrayan rebels getting really close to the capital of Addis Abeba, claiming that the state has been had enforced basically a famine in the region. But their military successes were significant. They actually took over huge areas of the state and yes. managed to force the government back into the stronghold of the capital, Addis Ababa. So there was a real threat to the actual government. Of, you probably remember that last year. Yeah, there just was, a year ago. Exactly. Exactly. And then since then, we didn't hear much of it. And the conflict sort of stale. It was a bit of a stalemate. And then since then the central government forces have been able to retake much of that land and fight back against the rebels. And that's led to the situation now where peace treaty has been signed. And as part of that, there's a disarmament a process, ceasefire. a ceasefire, sorry, not a peace treaty, but it's, it's a ceasefire. And then there's on top of that, a disarmament process, which mm -hmm. lends a lot of hope to the fact that it will be a long-term thing. It's also got clause in there for access for humanitarian aid for instance, to the areas of uh, Tigray, which you said were in famine. Mm -hmm. The one negative to the accords that have been held so far is that they didn't include neighboring Eritrea, of which Tigray was kind of in a two-way war and caught in the middle mm -hmm. between Ethiopia mm -hmm. and Eritrea. So it'll be yet to, it's yet to be seen if that will be a sticking point. But I think overall its prospects are quite good. It is uh, left to see whether the ceasefire though will last. If it lasts, probably we will have that. But however, this uh, ceasefire was signed on November 4th and November 5th. Tigray region claimed that Ethiopia had actually launched uh, strikes into the region. And 
uh, Addis Abeba claimed the opposite for coming from uh, Tigray. So hopefully the situation will will get better, but it is still... The ceasefire is a good first on, first step, but it is still left to see how how will it I mean, uh, develop in that sense. I mean, Ethiopia is the home of the African Union. Mm-hmm. So it's a very geographically and geopolitically important center in Africa. So its stability is really actually important. I think it's the third largest economy in Africa. So its long-term stability is super important and we'll see what 2023 holds. But I mean, in my opinion, I think that it's mostly a positive outlook. It's a much improved situation to this same time last year for Mm -hmm. Ethiopia. And now we finish with Africa and we go with Asia. What is happening in Asia? <laughs> well, what's happening in Asia? What we have right well, now? You first, have to start. You have to start with the biggest. We have to start with the biggest country in the world. <laughs> well, no. Oh yeah, they, they lost that status. By population, by population, they lost the status. Well, by population, it's always still there. But apparently, they will lose the status. However, we're gonna talk about the largest or second largest economy in the world. However, you are gonna uh, measure it, which is China. And China during 2022 has undergone through a couple interesting things that we would like to point out. The first of it has been its COVID zero policy and the repercussions that it's got in its own population. Just as a reminder, China was the location of the first case of the first confirmed case of COVID-19. And ever since they've ever since they've imposed a really, really harsh COVID zero policy with strict lockdown imposed by local authorities, mass testing, isolation at home. And sort of relating to that, pretty sure you've all seen the videos of how it works. The restriction, these restrictions uh, impacted the supply chains and cities, big cities such as Shanghai, Tianjin or Ningbo. And the low counts will remain until no, until no infections are reported. That means that if there are 30 infections, mm. 100 infections in a city of 5, 10 million people, the entire city it's had to go down. to lockdown. And exactly. I mean, this, these restrictions continued on until... The massive protests just in the last few weeks, mm-hmm. which have seen the government reverse their policies of some of these COVID zero measures. But this also had a massive impact on people's ability to earn money. It affected the supply chains. And it's been very interesting to see the situation develop, because if we look at China as a, as a whole, they have protests localized across the country fairly regularly, but they're never focused against the central ruling Communist Party, the CCP, or Xi himself, because they have such a stronghold over their access to information and the security forces mm-hmm. that it's not really a safe bet to actually criticize the government. And this was the first time we saw widespread protests against the CCP and Xi himself. And we saw a big state response to these protests. Uh, we saw them crack down on social media. We saw them crack down on the use of VPNs which gave people access to external sites outside China. Which were already cracked down before. Which were already cracked down before, but but this was even harsher. Mm -hmm. There's interesting how how did they crash down these uh, messages on Twitter, for example, or on Facebook? Yeah, so we saw evidence that, for instance, as you say, that there was huge bot influx on platforms such as Twitter, where they would use any hashtag such as Shanghai or Beijing or hashtag China. Or hashtag that I would like to point out, white paper. Or A4, because one of the things that were one of the icons of the icons behind these demonstrations were white A4 papers signifying signifying that they couldn't talk. Exactly. And so any of these hashtags basically just got inundated with rubbish posts about pornography, 
gambling, nonsense information. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like a, a flood of irrelevant information to try and control the narrative. And I mm-hmm. think we do touch on technology later, but I think it's a very important area for geopolitics of the future. I mean, how social media can be used by governments to control a population and how, how they can even crack down mo- on You don't even need to monitor. You need to overload it with other exactly. information in a way. Different strategies that the government mm-hmm. can use to combat the Would you call it a DDoS attack on, uh, yeah, it's on, different. on a hashtag? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> kind of a DDoS. <laughs> Same basic principle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As for uh, this was not the only thing that was happening in China. Uh, there are two matters that we're going to be talking about. Firstly, we want to talk a little bit about the economy. China has been growing below 5% this year, whereas the, it actually, according to the estimates, it's only, it only grew 39 year on year, whereas the, the, the target was to grow to 5.5. So their target of growth is really, really far. And this was some of the, this was one of Xi's uh, main promises in that matter. Importantly, these changes increase this this reduction of Chinese uh, GDP increases the chances of global of global recession and it makes the yuan more likely to have the worst year in decades as it uh, in relation with the US dollar and as you rightfully point out the fact that it could potentially lead to some sort of global recession is because China is a hub for world markets i mm-hmm. mean without chinese economy everything else sort of grinds to a halt and i mean it might not sound like much that the fact that they're only having 3.9% GDP growth compared to prediction of 5.5. But for China over the last 30 years, this is historically low and it's seen a drop in living standard. I think it might be the historically lowest in the last 30 years, which has also led fuel to this internal discontent, which we've seen again for the first time in 30 years, the same period, basically. So I think those two things are hand in hand. The COVID zero mm-hmm. policy meant that people were not able to go out and spend money, but also that they saw their livelihood and ability to earn money uh, severely affected. And then mm-hmm. downstream from that, the industrial construction, all these sort of industries were not able to be able to produce the highest amount of goods and everything yes. that were in previous years. Yes, there are several things that touch into this into this economic situation in, in China. The demand from countries such as the United States, for example, has been reduced. It has decreased due to higher interest rates with uh, an economic war going right now between the United States and China. The, Ukraine's, uh, the Ukraine war and the inflation related to that. And, for example, the property market crisis, which is uh, right now there are mortgages, uh, mortgages, payment refusal, and finance construction and industries that used to contribute to the GDP, but mm. right now they are not being that productive. And in that sense also, we can include climate change strike in China, where extreme weather is affecting industry sectors, for example, iPhone uh, or Tesla makers had to literally shut down their, their factories. Due to lack of electricity. Due to lack of electricity. Due to the rivers drying up, basically. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. And the uh, fact and that they couldn't generate the hydroelectricity power that they exactly. need to power these factories. Exactly. Which is which is really, really interesting. And also something that has happened not just in China, but elsewhere in the world, which we will talk about it, actually. The main tech business losing their investors. Mm-hmm. For example, one, one big example is Alibaba which has dropped revenue in revenues. Alibaba was really known uh, in other countries as AliExpress, for example, is part of the Alibaba group, but it's dropped its revenue and it's lost 10, more than 10,000 employees uh, this last year. 
I think the last point to talk about with China is the fact that they held their five-year CCP Congress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this was opportunity for Xi to stand for his third term of power. Their rules got changed so that he could remain in power for a third term. And so this is kind of a historic situation. During this position, he basically reinforced his own strategic strength within the, the party. And if we look at the the actual outlook for mm-hmm. China that came from this, he talks about Taiwan, wanting to take back Taiwan, the reunification being one of the key aspects of his next term in presidency. Peaceful um, or unpeaceful? Peaceful or for the first time outwardly stating that uh, he can't rule out the use of force or any other necessary measures to, mm-hmm. to reintegrate Taiwan. Mm-hmm. It is interesting because now we're seeing uh, Xi Jinping trying to fo- trying to see the balance between that pragmatism and that ideology. And for example, in the case of with the one China policy over Taiwan and so on. But there are also in regards with Taiwan, there are also some experts that are saying that nothing much has changed from the August 2022 Taiwan uh, white paper. Basically, in this report was a very detailed list of number of goals that China wanted to achieve between 2027 and 2035. So for Taiwan, that is more or less it. However, uh, there are other there are other regions where China is uh, involved in that sense. For example, we have the situation in the South China Sea, and it does not appear that China's South China Sea policies will change much after I mean, the new administration. What we see is a continuation of how they've acted in the last, say, three years, four years, which is expansionist policies throughout the South China Sea. We're looking to be more forceful to their neighbors, basically dominate that space through the, the, the increase newly, in... The newly created islands. Newly created islands, also an increase in naval visibility of Chinese vessels within the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. So they are the dominant presence there. They're trying to say to the rest of the countries that have area near the South China Sea that China is the boss. This is their playground, Mm -hmm. and that includes to America because of Taiwan, Japan, Mm -hmm. South Korea, that allied bloc surrounding China in the South China Sea. And now talking uh, about China, well, let's talk a little bit about Taiwan because something happened there, and is that U.S. House uh, Representative Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan on August 2nd uh, this year, which was the first formal visit of a U.S. officer since 1997 to the island. I think, like, we're just talking about China's South China Sea policy of aggression, maybe, of dominating that space. However, this is kind of a counter-reaction to that, with America reaffirming, this is their own word, reaffirm America's unshakable commitment to our allies and friends in the region. I think if you see this as part of a larger regional push from America to create closer ties with Japan, South Korea, Australia through the AUKUS Treaty which we might have a bonus episode release about mm-hmm. soon. These ties are part of a, a pushback against China's assertive South China Sea policies. This Taiwan visit is part of that whole situation where they're trying to put the focus back into Southeast Asia and... Pivot to Asia. A pivot to Asia. And I think because of this directly, it, it created a big pushback from China with them outwardly being hostile towards mm-hmm. the the visit. They first condemned the visit and called a, a provocation to the One China policy and mm-hmm. said it's a threat to their territorial integrity. Yep. 
They responded with force. They responded with military drills mm -hmm. uh, around Taiwan, even firing missiles to the eastern coast of Taiwan. Uh, there's a map here that shows you where is the eastern coast of Taiwan. So if you remember back in August, these were large-scale naval and, and air force operations using live ammunition, live bombing exercises, live shelling exercises, all just off the coast and right on the edge of Taiwan's territorial waters. So this is a massive show of force by China as a direct response to this visit from Nancy Pelosi and the U.S.'s reaffirmed commitment to Taiwan. Yeah, so for by 20, for 2023, we may see some increased tension or potential incidents within the South China Sea with regards to Taiwan. Yeah, I mean... Um, because both, uh, both great powers are looking at the island right now. I think it's an interesting place to look for next year as a hotspot. So if we look at Taiwan and Chinese relations and the potential there for an incident, in my opinion, is quite high. And then flowing really neatly on from that, if we stay in the region and say another area where there's really high possibility for maybe a miscalculation, but because of these increased tensions and hostilities, is North Korea. Yes. Basically, the U.S.-Japan Republic of Korea trilateral, trilateral partnership of the Indo-Pacific apparently triggered angry a, response from, angry, uh, from, angry uh, response from North Pyongyang, Korea. Yeah. And the response was uh, the response was given in the shape of rocket launches. They've launched long-range intercontinental launched, exactly. missiles over They've Japan. Over Japan, even with uh, apparently with nuclear capacity. So it's basically in a show-off of uh, North Korea's capability to actually wage war or attack any of these territories. As a response, and, and it's created a situation a little bit more unpredictable in the in the Korean yeah. Peninsula within... Because obviously know, North Korea is a nuclear power as well. North Korea is a nuclear power. We know that there is a demilitarized zone. There is no peace signed between the two Koreas and, and all these matters. And uh, obviously to those rocket launches, there was a response from Washington, Tokyo and, uh, and Seoul. Seoul. With the United States willing to defend South Korea and Japan with full range of capabilities, including nuclear weapons, as stated in the Cambodia summit. Uh, there's also been joint military drills between the three countries to maintain peace, stability and defend their rule-based international order. I mean, from North Korea, you never know. <laughs> you never know. I think this is kind of the tensest it's been for a long time, mm -hmm. like the Taiwan-China situation. And I think, again, it shows the... The world in 2023 might be quite an unstable place with a lot of these conflicts flaring up after they've kind of been dormant or stagnant for a long time and maybe states more willing to wage war again in the shadow of the Russia-Ukraine war as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And following Asia, and just also to finish a little bit with it, we cannot forget about an island in South Asia, which is Sri Lanka. Which and I think a lot of people might have... Which have, a lot of people might not have heard of it, but uh, there's been something... Or maybe they've seen the videos, uh, because maybe. the videos were really... Were really but they were brief. I mean, they were, they were brief. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they went out of public attention. I think this was a really big news story earlier in the year that sort of faded away. Basically, for you to understand it, what happened in Sri Lanka after COVID-19, the foreign debt of the country increased, causing an inflation of more than 55% and increasing... And unprecedented demonstrations took place in the country. Also, there were shortages of basic necessities of food and fuel. And these protests in March 
blaming the government for its for the worst island crisis in the history, even managed to storm key government buildings, even the house of the prime minister, of and, the president. And the president ended up fleeing the country, basically. Mm-hmm. President Rayapasa, Rayapa, Rayapaksa. Rajapaksa. Mm-hmm. And following this, Rajapaksa resigned as president. He fled for the Maldives. And the prime minister... Wick Remashinge, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but he declared a state Pardon of emergency. Pardon us for our pronunciation. <laughs> Sri Lankan names are very difficult, I think. But then he became president after declaring a state of emergency. So he was prime minister, he took over as president, and then Dinesh Gunawardena became prime minister. Mm-hmm. However, as soon as the spotlight sort of went away from Sri Lanka, the Rajapaksa family returned to the country and posed a new challenge to the security of the country. The, the Rajapaksa family have held power in Sri Lanka for... For the last 30... For two for decades. decades. Yeah, for decades. And have very long reach and stronghold over government institutions. Mm-hmm. But they have been basically accused of corrupting the country throughout these two decades. And the pro- protesters actually said that in case of Rajapaksa coming back to power, they would go back to, to the streets. They were also in the middle of among all these problems that they were already internally having throughout the year they also saw themselves in the middle of the power competition between china and the united states mm. where they accepted one chinese vessel to deck in colombo if i'm not wrong in the in the port and the united states told them that they couldn't accept the chinese entering there and the chinese were i mean this is also like we can do it the government is accepting us blah blah so the the Sri Lankan population suddenly saw itself not just with the inflation that they had with all the internal problems that they had with new government and so on they also saw themselves in the middle of that power competition in the Indic Ocean between China and the United States yeah I mean the failure and the collapse of the Sri Lankan government and the ensuing problems is basically a trilateral issue I think we have like the intersection between foreign aid, foreign aid and foreign investment from mm-hmm. the West. We have Chinese direct investment through the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. And then we've got poor governance and corruption from the government making these three pillars, which in turn collapsed the economy and <laughs> land meant that they couldn't even import basic necessities such as fuel and medicine. And mm-hmm. I don't know that the outlook for me for Sri Lanka for 2023 is still pretty bleak. I haven't seen a huge turnaround in the government. I don't know if it will get better. But we're going to stay a little bit, and this is the last. However, I said before that that one was the last because now we want to talk about something that affects geography and affects politics. And that's why we have it in geopolitics, which is climate change. And climate change this year, it's been pers- it's been identified in the COP COP27, which took place in Dar al-Sham in Egypt. But before talking about the convention, we would like to talk a little bit on the effects of climate change and that this year I think they have to be put on the floods that have been happening in Pakistan. Yeah, there's been effects of climate change felt all across the globe and predominantly it's the poorer nations that bear the brunt of the worst of climate change. But I mean, just to name a few incidents, we have huge severe flooding and, and storms in Miami in the United States. We had fires in Spain at the beginning of the year and now the worst of all these natural disasters was the floods that happened in Pakistan. So these floods, truly awful natural disaster, 
which followed back-to-back heat waves in Pakistan, causing the glaciers in the Himalayas to actually melt and bring down huge quantities of water from the Himalayas. And then immediately following this, there was a record monsoon rainfall season, which led to extensive flooding and 33 million people, or one in seven people in the whole country, being impacted and many, most of those being displaced from their homes. Mm-hmm. No, according to the latest data, around 33 million people or one in seven people in Pakistan have been uh, impacted in one way or another. 1,700 people have already died. 1.2 million livestock heads have been killed. 7.5 million have been internally displaced. And still, an estimated 25% of the country is underwater, which is something incredible i mean the videos coming from pakistan have been something incredible because critical infrastructure and facilities have been just damaged causing issues in drinking water and cultivating food and having any kind of food throughout basically the the entire country already pakistan is as you were saying one of the most vulnerable and also one of the least contributors to global greenhouse gases with less than one percent Pakistan, as you say, is one of is not a very big contributor to global greenhouse gases, but they bore the brunt of this natural disaster, and it's caused overestimated thirty billion U.S. dollars worth of damage, which led to this being used as a push at COP twenty seven to try and include for the first time a loss and damage fund against the rich nations, which basically caused all the pollution over the industrialization period. So we we'll look at all of Europe, America, Australia, all these industrialized nations, which far outweigh their contribution to the greenhouse gas situation that we have now, mm-hmm. compared to the much poorer nations, the developing nations, which don't have this history of burning fossil fuels, but are actually bearing the brunt of the current situation. And I think that's an interesting way to lead into COP27, how mm-hmm. that was used by, I think they were called the COP77, which was this grouping of 77 developing nations to push for the loss and damage fund, which was probably one of the biggest outcomes of COP27. Yeah, there were two, basically two outcomes that were pursued by these developing nations. The first one was the the one that you've just mentioned. And the second was the they were trying to make the developed nations or the industrialized nations fund their transition to green energy as their main concern right now for these developing nations is not climate change rather than energy security because it's a most immediate threat for them. However, the draft document, the ending draft document, as you were mentioning, yes, it includes this mechanism for poorer nations to claim historical damage in that matter, but it does not mention any phase out of oil and gas and commits only to phase out unabated coal, leaving a lot of space for both countries and multinational institutions and multinational companies and so on to keep on polluting. For this matter, one of the problems highlighted by the UN expert group report here on COP27 was that greenwashing is a persistent problem. Which is these big international corporations making their image seem to be a lot more green than it actually is. We see fossil fuel companies spend 99% of their budget on, mm-hmm. green, on promoting greenery when they only spend, I think, 20% of their research and development on new green technologies where they are amongst the biggest polluters in the world so these companies are continuing to undertake greenwashing and it's not just limited to petrochemical companies it also includes 
or clothing brands. Coca-Cola, or, if yeah. I'm not wrong, is the largest polluter in the world. Quite possibly. <laughs> I think it so, is, yes. I mean, it's a huge problem that's persisting. And I would, I mean, COP27 doesn't give a huge case for optimism. It will if some of these poorer nations are given access to funds to fund a green transition. But considering that most of the developed nations are struggling to sell that to their own domestic markets, I think that the outlook for 2023 is not good. I think we'll see more of the same and we'll end up in a situation like we were from last COP, COP26, where we look and the same pledges are repeated. I remain pessimistic on the outlook and unfortunately for in that in this matter future. in this matter actually i would like to to highlight the recent wave of demonstrations or of direct actions related to climate change objectives that have taken place both in europe and the united states criticized sometimes because of the way of doing it but still the amount of direct actions the people that have taken that are taking place in these direct actions which are not just the youth, as it was in the follow in the previous years, groups, massive groups of scientists pointing out the moment that we are right now and the need to actually address climate change properly and not through greenwashing, it is important and it will probably that movement will probably keep on growing and if not addressed properly, it will probably now that I'm thinking about it, it will probably develop into a proper security threat in developed countries. So that is something that will live there. We'll see in 2023 how it goes. And now let's forget about the realms that we have, the, the geopolitical domains. Physical earthbound domains. But let's go on to technology. So I, I would say so this, is a, this is a cyber domain. And I mean, if we talk about greenwashing, mm -hmm. I think we're going to touch briefly now on the rise and fall of crypto, the performance of tech industry, some of these huge investment places where we've seen huge money poured into and actually can be quite terrible for the environment as well. Mm -hmm. If we look at big tech corporations in general, 2022 was a very bad year. It was I think terrible. We saw, them, we saw them lose massive amounts of capital, including Meta, PayPal, Netflix, all of their stock market plummeted, NVIDIA Twitter. because... Twitter these days, NVIDIA because of the chip war that's being mm -hmm. played out between mm -hmm. Taiwan and US and, and China. It's all interconnected with the geopolitics of the regions there. Yes. And uh, for example, there's been a massive layoffs from these technological companies. Amazon has announced firing 10,000 people, which represents 3% of its workforce. Meta has fired 11,000 people, which represents 13% of the workforce. Even Microsoft has had to fire, has fired 1,000 people. And as you say, Twitter's fired 5,000 people. Twitter's fired 5,000 people and lost, I don't know, like double digits of value. I think it's like 35%. The causes for the downturn of this, of the tank market can be found on the high inflation and the high interest rates posed by the Fed. And this fell of tech stock prices has, has affected the cryptocurrency market massively this year with a massive falls like Bitcoin falling from the, its highest ever in November 2021 to 75% less nowadays, yeah. which is incredible. And maybe this is the beginning of the end for those cryptos. I mean, we've seen just recently the failure of some of the big crypto exchange such as FTX collapsing as well as a, a, earlier in the year we saw a not as big market but Terra Luna also collapsed I mean these places were kind of unregulated existed outside 
the realm of government interaction. And, and we've seen now that there's a lot of risk and that actually this may sort of end, put an end to that sort of deregulation and this playground where people were spending huge amounts of money and making a lot of money. There was just no ability for government oversight, which mm-hmm. protects these markets around the world. We've seen, for instance, is it uh, El Salvador, yes, where indeed. they they adopted Bitcoin as one of their official currencies, mm-hmm. and now that's had huge ramifications. This drop in price of Bitcoin seventy five percent means they've had huge losses, huge losses, huge gaps in the government budget mm-hmm. because of being closely tied with this cryptocurrency market. Mm-hmm. One interesting thing that I want to touch upon uh, FTX, as you were mentioning, is that both the co-CEOs were the the second or one of the biggest donors of one of them from the Republican Party of the United States and the other one from the Democrat Party of the United States. Just to see more or less where these people were putting their money in every side. We can go already on to space, I believe. Their fourth physical domain of the realm of geopolitics. So the first thing to talk about this year in space, what happened in 2022, was the DART mission, which was the first of its kind, which was basically NASA conducting a what was called a double asteroid redirection test, DART, but was basically to test whether we could stop an asteroid from impacting on Earth. If there's one heading towards us, whether... We on Earth had the capability. I mean, we've seen it in movies for a long time. We saw Jason Statham up there <laughs> drilling on the asteroid. But in real reality, this was science fiction True. until this year that we can actually launch a craft on a um, asteroid and then blow it up or collide with it with enough force that it would direct it out of Earth's orbit. This was a huge success, I think, this mission. The DART spacecraft was launched actually 2021, but this crash took place this year and weighed up to 600 kilograms. And the goal of the mission, as you rightfully mentioned, was to collide with the Dimorphos asteroid, which orbits around the Didymos asteroid located in the Apollo group of near-Earth asteroids. I understood everything after here. On the 11th October, NASA confirmed that it was a success. And even though it doesn't guarantee that the Earth would be protected in case of an asteroid clash or whatever, it is a first step into managing mm. this planetary security. Defense and security system. Exactly, exactly. And just on this space security situation, the second major development from a geopolitics level is the first ban or basically treaty signed by the United States on anti-satellite testing. They announced in April that they're not going to conduct any anti-satellite missile tests. We saw Russia actually undertake this in 2021, which causes huge amounts of space debris because of the huge speeds objects are hurtling around the Earth at when they're in orbit. Even an object the size of a pea can cause devastating damage to our satellite infrastructure, to the International Space Station, and an impact like that itself creates yeah, more debris. And yeah, exactly. It cascades down and becomes, and we could eventually get to a place where we couldn't actually launch shuttles into space anymore. So this, to me, is a huge step forward in basically codifying that they are not going to undertake these tests. So far, there's only been tests by US, India, China, and Russia. However, and even though the UN General Assembly voted on December 7th to not launch this anti-satellite testing, 
nine countries voted no, and among those, you have abstain in India, Russia, China, and Iran saying no. So it is still left to see if this will actually be properly enforced. But it is, as you were mentioning, it is a, it I, is a dangerous I uh, think, situation. I, th I think the goal of this treaty by the United States is actually to create a precedent similar to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, mm -hmm. where it becomes such a big international taboo that no country really would do it anymore. And so I think it's a first step towards doing that. And as you see already, we've had 155 countries signing on. Most of those countries, admittedly, don't have the capabilities to launch anti-satellite missile. Really, really fast rocks into the... <laughs> and very precise. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, very technologically advanced, but just the fact that they've able to get, I mean, all the other nations to sign on, India abstaining, that's probably the next major geopolitical hurdle to try and get India on board because India previously conducted these tests and caused huge amounts of debris, which will be up there for the next three decades. China's done the same. And as we said, Russia have already done it. So the first hurdle will be India. And then we look forward to these countries maybe signing on and creating a new age of space security and a shared utilization of space for the future. So I think that's a good place to leave it for a for 2022 i mean it's been a long 2022 huh it has there's been a As lot you said, we started we started with full lockdown everything and now now we ended up with space satellites tested <laughs> missiles flying but i think it's, it's been, been a really long year i don't know what am i gonna do <laughs> <laughs> but i mean However, it's been as, a good year as you said at the start this has been the first year of the geopolitical pickle and we really We really appreciate everyone that has been here with us and anyone that continues to jump in the pickle jar, as you say. That's, that's <laughs> it's our pickle jar. We just want to thank you all for, our, for your sustained support, for checking our videos, for checking our content. We hope that we're it's doing something that you like, that it's interesting for you. It's entertaining, will, it's interesting, and we and you're learning. You learn something. We're coming with more for 2023 because, as you see, the world is not stopping, so we cannot stop. So just to end, we would like to thank all the people that are making the geopolitical people possible because we are the faces of this sometimes, but there's a lot of people working here with us. We Without their behind-the-scenes efforts, we wouldn't be able to bring exactly. you this high-quality content every week. So thank you very much to Alex Perry, our executive producer. We want to thank Diana Rumedo, Lia Rodriguez, Lucas Piller, Paula Gomez, and also our constant guests that we've got, Milos Dangubis, Federico Caprari, for their research and for their research and everything. Also want to thank Shelby Wickless for her support and, and creative her, design and tips. creative and wonderful meals. And I want to thank you, my wonderful co-host Ronan Wordsworth, for the first season of the Geopolitical Pico. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed as much as I did and I hope I people indeed. enjoyed as much as I did with you. I did indeed, and yeah, we look forward to being back with you next year after Christmas and New Year. So, wish everyone happy holiday season and all the best for next year. Have a nice year, and see you again at the Geopolitical People.